Bibles tonight, please turn to the second chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Suffering that conquers the last days. How does suffering conquer? It's those who are conquered that suffer, right? Not those who conquer. Suffering is a result of being Conquered, but again, not in this kingdom. The kingdom of the crucified king who was raised. The only way those who suffer can be said to conquer is if suffering is the means through which victory is achieved. If suffering gives life rather than takes it. Our God means to change our perspective on suffering. To define it not by what we could lose in the moment, but by what we will gain for eternity. The church in Smyrna, the second church we look to tonight, suffered specifically for their allegiance to Christ. That's what Revelation reveals about them. It's when when this when I'm talking about suffering here, when the text here is talking about suffering, this is not the general kind of suffering that all human beings endure because we're living in a cursed and fallen world, like sicknesses, disease, pain difficulties, those things. This is the suffering that comes from being in the world, but not of it. This is the suffering we would endure as sojourners and exiles in the world. And listen, we haven't suffered yet like this. We really haven't. I mean, at least generally speaking, maybe we've all had kind of personal experiences where we've been made fun of or mocked or left out or something because of our faith. But to suffer Like what's being written here, we haven't experienced this yet. And in one way, of course, that's a blessing that we haven't had to suffer that. But I think we need to go deeper than that tonight. If we are to be the true church, refined by fire, we will have to suffer like this. Like we read tonight in Revelation 2. Or our lampstand will go out. There will be no light from us. It's it's hard to say these things because I don't I don't want to imply as I talk tonight that I'm looking forward to this, that I'm asking for it to come, that I like pain, I like suffering, I I do not. And I, I can't even imagine what it's like to suffer like this. So please don't take that from me. Let's try to endure pain. Let's try to make it hurt, literally. That's not at all what I mean. I I, I don't really want that at all. But the fact remains According to the teaching of Revelation chapter 2, where there is no suffering specifically for the name of Christ, there can be no real way for the church to be pure. For the church to be the church the Bible has called us to be. A church that doesn't suffer is very hard for the world to take seriously. Very hard. A church that doesn't suffer doesn't remind anyone of Jesus who was crucified. In this world. So, generally speaking, it actually costs people nothing to belong to the church in America, other than our time, maybe. Right? That, that's, that's really about all that it really costs us to belong to the church in the United States. Therefore, we are a compromised church, a largely compromised church, precisely because It doesn't really cost us anything real to be a part of it. We run from this kind of suffering. We try very hard to avoid ever having to endure the kind of suffering the Scripture says will purify us. Right? We're Americans. I said that this morning. We enjoy personal rights granted to us by our government. We enjoy wonderful freedoms, the freedom of religion, which is pretty rare in most of the world But we run from the possibility of those things being taken away because maybe we haven't yet learned the value of the eternal life Christ has granted to us in the gospel. We we, we don't live mainly, exclusively, by hoping in the promise of the gospel, but also by the hope that we can keep this life here from getting too hard to endure. Right, So we're, we're trying to have full allegiance to Christ while also hoping that the world will not go away that will make that hard, right? I think, and I, I, I'm not going to dig into this too deeply tonight. We, we will, obviously. 
as we go through Revelation. But I wonder if this is why the American church has grasped so tightly onto rapture theology. Right? It's just, hold on tight, wait till he comes, get me out of here, get me off this planet. Right? Beloved, that's a very new theology. I hope we all understand that before we think I'm nuts. Rapture, like the, the secret event that takes place before the seven-year tribulation, that showed up in a pamphlet in the 1800s. That's how new it is. Okay, so I wonder how much... And, and by the way, if you get out of the English-speaking world, you don't hear of it in the church. It's not even in their discussions of the end times. As we think of them, it's a uniquely American ideal. I just heard a preacher talking about this earlier this evening. But I wonder how much that affects our thinking. That if we can just hold out till we get taken out of here, and of course the Lord is going to literally return. Of course we're going to be caught up with Him in the air when He does. But this idea that it's secret and that it's just going to happen and there'll be unmanned cars and clothes laying on the ground. And beloved, how much is that affecting our thinking? The church in Smyrna had been suffering economic hardship because of Jewish slander against them in their city, but they are about to experience the punishment of death from the Romans, specifically for, exclusively for, their allegiance to Jesus. God has appointed us to endure tribulation for the sake of Jesus Christ and His gospel, but He will give the crown of life to those who do. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son who is risen and exalted and reigning and has overcome the world. And by faith in him alone, we overcome the world also. So Lord, we will rest in you. Teach us how we might do that tonight as we read about suffering for the sake of your son's name in this world. Fill me with your spirit. Please help me speak clearly and accurately. Help me divide the word rightly. And God, please help all of us to hear and to understand and not only hear, but do your word. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 8 through 11 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If you were to leave Ephesus and go about 35 to 40 miles north of there, you would run into the city of Smyrna. At the time this letter was written and arrived, Smyrna was about the size of 100,000 people. It was a, a very large city by Asia Minor Roman Empire standards. In fact, Smyrna is the only one of these seven cities where the letters are written that still exists Today, this is Smyrna is today modern uh, is Izmir in western Turkey. It's the only one still remaining. Jesus introduced himself in verse eight with a description again, wording from the vision in chapter one that best fits Smyrna's situation. Here he says, "I am the first and the last who died and came to life." What does he focus on? The result of his death by the suffering of crucifixion. Smyrna and Philadelphia, which we'll get to later, these are the only two churches to which the Spirit of John, or, or the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, excuse me, spoke, and John wrote that weren't corrected for anything. There are no words of complaint to Smyrna, only words of commendation, only encouragement and exhortation to them, because Smyrna was a suffering church. But if Jesus is the first and the last, then Jesus rules over all history, doesn't he? He rules over the rulers that are making them suffer, that are behind their suffering. And if he is risen, then the death they are about to suffer is not final and does not have the final word. That's the foundation of this church's comfort in the midst of their suffering that's about to intensify 
and get as bad as it can get for a human being. Smyrna was a very proud Roman city, very proud, very loyal to the empire. They were in a sort of you know, competition with Ephesus, the first church we read about, to be the greatest city in Asia Minor. They had a long history of deep loyalty to the empire, uh, including the construction of Asia Minor's first temple, uh, dedicated to Rome's power way back in 195 B.C. Well, 60 years before this letter arrived, or about 60 years before this letter arrived, in 29 A.D., all the cities in Asia Minor competed for the honor of building a temple to honor the emperor Tiberius. Smyrna won that contest and got to erect this great temple to the emperor. They were deeply devoted to the worship of the emperor. It wasn't just a religion, one that you could pick. It was the culture. You were fanatical about the emperor and his glory. They, they, they call it the imperial cult, or outsiders would call it the imperial cult. The Romans didn't really care if you worship Jesus just as long as you also worship the emperor as God. As Savior. So when Christians, for example, started refusing to burn incense at the temple built to the emperor and his glory, that's when the trouble started. That's when persecution started. Smyrna was so wrapped up in the imperial cult as a way of life that if you weren't in it, if if you weren't in the imperial cult, you could never achieve anything. You could never become wealthy or stable or acceptable. That only happened to the degree you were involved in the worship of the emperor alongside everybody else. It was a cultural religion. Public funds were even used to help fund or pay for sacrifices that were made to the emperor. That was a part of your tax dollar. So if you were trying to avoid that, you're not just legally out of step. You're out of step culturally and completely misplaced. During the reign of the emperor Domitian, which is from about 81 to 96 AD, the persecution against the Christians increased Dramatically, That's what we're reading about as we come into verse 9. There's the pressure to conform intensified greatly. Those who refuse to participate in the worship of Rome and its emperor aren't anymore. They're not just a nuisance anymore. They're disloyal. They're unpatriotic. They're a threat, right? They're a threat to the Romans. They, anybody that did this was arrested. They were imprisoned, punished according to Roman law, which was exile or capital punishment. That Those were the options. But for the Christians in Smyrna, the attacks against them came mainly, or the intensified attacks came mainly as a result of Jewish slander against the church in verse 9. Some in the Jewish community were informing the authorities about the actions of the Christian church. They had been deceived by the enemy. A culture that highly valued social stability would have seen any different religious movement as a political threat. So, Followers of Judaism that, of course, hated Christians for the most part anyway, figured we can ingratiate ourselves to the empire if we help out this sect of these Christians, these Christ followers that are foolish enough to think Jesus was their Messiah. So they went against, they would turn in those or tell on those who were going against the empire, weren't taking part in the imperial cult. So as new believers then are pushed out of the Jewish community for believing in Christ, it exposed them to their neighbors, it exposed them to um, loyal officials within the city or to the empire. The irony in all of this, though, is that even though these Jewish opponents of the church thought they were God's people, they're actually false Jews in verse 9. He calls them a synagogue of Satan in verse 9. That's the spirit of Jesus speaking to John and now to the church in Smyrna. They said they were Jewish, and Jesus says they're not Jewish. Now, how is that possible? They're Jews, right? They're Jewish people. Ethnically, they're Jews. They're physical descendants, no mistake, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But inwardly and spiritually, they're not Jews at all. And that's the only thing that matters now. What is inwardly true and spiritually true. And in that sense, they weren't Jews at all. What kind of talk is this? It's the talk of the New Covenant, of the New Testament. Paul teaches us that in light of the New Covenant, in light of the finished work of Christ, true Jews, the true people of God, are those who've embraced Jesus as their Messiah by grace through faith, regardless of ethnicity. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Philippians 3, verse 3. This is all through The scripture here, to be born again, part of that is to be born anew into the family of God, having our hearts circumcised. 
by Christ. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says very clearly that it is those of faith in Christ that are the seed of Abraham. Texts such as these are why we must read the word Israel now, or Jews, as those who are in Christ by faith. There needs to, and I hope will, or that needs to, and I hope will, have a massive impact on how we understand the book of Revelation biblically when it uses such words. Beloved, if, if this is a very difficult thing for Baptists to accept. Most of us have a dispensational or a futuristic reading of Revelation, and so we feel like we have everything understood as we read the Old Testament. And so when we come across texts like Paul in Galatians, we think, well, that can't mean what it says, because all these promises still remain to the nation of Israel itself. But the New Testament, in light of the New Covenant, redefines what Israel is. Think about how that would affect the way you read Revelation. If you go into Revelation thinking, now remember, there are two peoples of God, two plans, one for Israel as a nation, one for the church. So you, you, you can't give Revelation an honest reading. right? You, you, you can't let it stand. You, you, because you're bringing all this stuff into it and saying, now, that can't mean that. And of course, that's not that because of, of this. And Beloved, I'm just... And listen, we're going we're gonna to really dig into this as we go throughout this book. And I know for many of us, that's very hard to accept. And again, at the end of the day, this is one of the things we can agree to disagree on. Really, we can and be charitable with one another. But as I said, I'll, I'll preach the book how I think it's, or by what I think it's saying and what it's teaching. But the people of God are now defined by Christ. They're not defined genealogically. They're not defined geographically. And again, that's so hard for a dispensational or futuristic mindset to accept that the church is identified as the latter-day Israel, not as a replacement. That's a straw man argument. But as a fulfillment of God's plan through Abraham, which is very clearly for all nations. So if we come into the the book of Revelation still looking for all these promises to be fulfilled to the nation itself, it's going to greatly affect how we... If if that's your thinking, you need a seven-year period in there with the church gone so God can pick up His plan with national Israel. But is that what the whole of Scripture teaches? I would say an emphatic no. But again, we can agree to disagree, but we need to let the text shape us rather than our ideas shape the text. There are not two peoples of God. There are not two plans. And we can't read the prophecies of Revelation as though they're made to a people that technically don't exist anymore. The word constrains us. Constrains us. The identity of the church as God's one people. One people. That was the whole point of Jesus dying in Ephesians chapter 2. To dare doubt, to tear down the wall so there's no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile and the people of God which would mean the promises that were made, I have to understand that those are kept in Christ and therefore don't default or go unfulfilled. The identity of the church as God's one people is confirmed all throughout the text of Revelation. You'll be amazed at how streamlined Revelation becomes if you read it as it stands instead of trying to insert things that aren't there. That identity, however, is in context here in chapter 2 confirmed by the fact that the church is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy from his book in Isaiah 41.4, 44.6, The identity of the church as this is enhanced further when the Spirit of Jesus identifies the suffering of the church here with those of Daniel and his three friends way back in Daniel chapter 1 verse 24 in the 10 days they were tested under Nebuchadnezzar, all of that's intentional. All of that is meant for our minds to link these things together in the mind of God. False accusations against the church by Jewish people in Smyrna identify the Jewish people there with Satan now, regardless of their ethnicity. And this is the characteristic of the beast in Revelation. This is what he does. He's called the beast because he persecutes those who are, in fact, God's people, the church. Revelation 13, 1. And 5 and 6, Revelation 17, 3 through 6. As a result 
of this collusion with Satan, the Christians are being persecuted and oppressed by various economic measures that were taken against them by Rome. They would have been banned from the trade guilds, so completely left out of economic gain in that society. They would have been imprisoned, awaiting torture or death. They would have lost property. It's the same kind of suffering we uh, probably saw alluded to in Hebrews 10.34, where they had to joyfully accept the plundering of all their property because they identified themselves with Christians. By the way, verses like these have been used in the past, unfortunately, by those claiming to be Christians to justify anti-Semitism and things like that. That's not remotely what is being said here. Anti-Semitism is evil and sinful, and it's not at all what the Bible is saying. It's this group of people had identified themselves as a synagogue of Satan. In verse 9, however, Jesus knows, just like he did with the church in Ephesus. He knows the poverty of his people. Their allegiance to him is literally costing them money and livelihood. They're being slandered and hated. People are suspicious of them and think their religion means to take over, but not because they were vocal about their rights. That's not why they're suffering. They're suffering because they refuse to worship the cult. That's true persecution. That's persecution as the Bible defines it. Christians in America, we've been protected for so long by our government, haven't we? We've enjoyed the protection and support of our government for as long as our country has existed. However, rather than freeing us, that privilege freeing us to be even more committed to Jesus, more committed to the spread of His gospel with all these protections, which is what God would have us pray for in 1 Timothy 2. It's like we got Stockholm Syndrome and fell in love with our captors. Freedom doesn't come from America. Freedom doesn't come from its governments and its creeds. I'm not free because of the Constitution. I'm a free person because it comes from Christ, regardless of whether or not a government gives us those things. Jesus doesn't free us by making governments allow us to exist. That's not what he does. But by giving us life and freedom, when they seek to take it from us, and so the church is compromised by the lack of true suffering. Don't miss the forest for the trees here tonight. That's what we're learning in this text. The church is unavoidably compromised by the lack of true suffering for the name of Christ. And times may be changing in our country. Times may be changing. At one time, we were simply, even in my lifetime, we were just mainly marginalized. Not liked, tolerated. Our views were considered outdated and ancient or even silly. We were a nuisance. Now we're being increasingly accused of bigotry, which is, is the worst thing you can be nowadays. That, that racism of any kind, is that's the worst sin. And if anybody's guilty of that, their life should be ruined and over. And I'm not justifying the sin of racism. It is a sin. I'm saying it's become the sin. The one thing you do not want to be labeled in our culture. So... What do they accuse Christians of more than anything? Of bigotry, intolerance. We are an unloving people. Love is love. Why can't we just let people live? Now we're anti-Semitic. We're anti-choice. We're anti-gay. We're anti-woman. We're anti-intellectual. We're intolerant. We're elitist. But rather than seeing this as an opportunity to finally begin to be pressed to reveal the truth about Christ, to love and bless our enemies, and pray for them, and lovingly and clearly proclaim the gospel to them, the church has, in America, doubled down on our rights, and we've drawn a line in the sand to fight them with the weapons allowed for us by the government, at least for now, to make sure the left is the group that gets marginalized and conquered, not us. So we've decided, rather than being gospel-centric, Christ-centered, in this new war, we've decided, no, 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 we'll double down. We'll keep this country. You will not take it from us. We'll have our freedoms. We'll have our rights. Beloved, the fight is not on that front. It is not on that front. This is not the way of Jesus. 
Suffering is not a test to see if we'll fight for our rights. Suffering is a test to see if our true hope is in Christ or not. Jesus knows that Satan is behind this. He's already conquered the enemy. He's fighting a losing battle, even though he's fighting very hard. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Why not? Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Difficult days are coming in Smyrna. It may be a literal ten days. It may not be a literal ten days. It's probably not a literal ten days, but a reminder flowing out of who Jesus said He was for them in verse 8. He's saying, I'm the Lord over history. I'm the first and the last. I will put a limit on the time you're going to suffer. It will only last this long. I am in control. I set the time for my church, not the Romans. Right? So it's either that or it's a literal ten days. Now one commentator brings out, notice this, beloved, the connection between their suffering and their sanctification in the middle of verse 10. This is the hinge of the text here. He says... Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. Satan would have one design in testing believers. But who is the first and the last? There's another design, another tester. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That you may be tested. That's a purpose-filled statement. You're being thrown into prison by the devil that you may be tested. The purpose of their imprisonment is directed by God. God is using Satan to accomplish his purpose in the church to make their faith like gold. Satan is not testing them like that. Satan doesn't want to reveal their true faith. He wants to kill all of their faith. So make no mistake, what is about to come now is death. That is what's coming. Be faithful unto Death. That's what you're about to suffer, many of you. When one was imprisoned in Rome, it, that was not the punishment. right? They, they didn't have a prison system like we do here. To be incarcerated in Rome meant very clearly one of two things. Either you're awaiting your trial, or you're going to be put to death. Those were the options. Jesus is revealing many of you are going to be killed. Be faithful unto death. When he exhorts them with those words, be faithful unto death, that's why. And the reward for being faithful unto death is the crown of life. And the crown of life that is promised after the appointed time of testing is something much better than improved circumstances in Smyrna. That's not the crown of life. It was the supreme victory. The crown of life is like the laurel wreath that's used to honor an athlete in their culture. There's also idea, an idea of royal authority in a crown, a laurel wreath. This crown of life is the gift of eternal life in the presence of God forever. To be finally free from this world. That's the crown of life. So beloved, listen. The goal is not religious freedom. Okay? God does not need that to exist to spread the gospel of the kingdom. If we have it, we should use it to our advantage every moment we can. We, we're afforded the right to vote leaders that will protect it, and I will continue to vote for such leaders as God gives me grace. But that's not the goal. The goal is not to not suffer. The goal is not to not suffer. So, Again, only in America, I think, do we have the luxury of fighting over the end times. Right? We, that's, we've gotten mired down in those things. We, 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 just, we just have all this opportunity and freedom, so we can, just, we can have whole conferences to talk about one side of eschatology and another conference on the other side of the country to talk about it the other way. We, we just have, I mean, we can, you can go to Louisville in April of the coming year with like 15,000 other believers and have a Theology conference where they play basketball in Louisville. Right? That's, we can do that. And look, I, I love that. I, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to hurt. Literally. Alright? I, I don't, 
I don't want to have my head cut off. I, I, the, please don't misunderstand me here like I'm all tough. No, I'm not. I'm scared to death about those things, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know how I'll stand when that day comes. I'm simply saying the Word speaks. And it sounds very much here like we're at a disadvantage for the faith when we have all the support of our earthly government behind us. That won't make me very popular, will it? So what if freedom is granted to us by our government? So what? Or by our constitution for a couple more years if we're lucky. Or maybe a couple hundred. Who knows? God does not require that for His gospel to spread. The gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't want to admit it, is built to spread mainly through a suffering church and a marginalized church and a maligned church. All the triumphalism of winning does not proclaim a suffering Savior. God has never required the support of human governments, ever, and He never will. America makes us think the goal is the protection of our freedom, the preservation of our voice. We believe that this is what was granted to us as an unalienable right by our God. We really believe that. I'd love the texts for that. But that's the wrong fight. It's, it, it's not a... I don't hate America. I love America. Please, I don't want to be misunderstood tonight. Beloved, I'm just telling you, we're Christians. We're, there's something that's supposed to be different about us. Very strange to the world. What to the world would look like foolishness. If all we're trying to do is win, we look exactly like they do. Let there be a revelation of thought in the church. What has been granted to us by God is trials, suffering, tribulation, that our faith may be tested and revealed to be true. To be tested by persecution that results, or to be tested by opposition that results in true persecution. Not tested by losing rights that man, not God, has endowed us with. The genius of the gospel is lost when the church aligns itself and stands or falls by political power. All that we have that makes us unique is lost when we do this. That you may be tested. That you may be tested. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, this, this is not unique to Revelation. The whole New Testament talks like this. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it's necessary, he says, for us to be grieved now by various trials. They're God's purpose for the endurance of our faith. In Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted to us. Those are the words. Not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His namesake. That has been granted to us as a gift. I will make sure you know that your faith is real. How? By granting that you will suffer for believing in Me. There are no books on that one that are making the New York Times bestseller list. Right? No conferences on that one. God works through persecution that brings trials and suffering so that His people would know Jesus really is our hope and our salvation. That, oh, yes, I really do believe on Him. Right? If the church around the world that is oppressed is more vibrant and faithful, which I, I don't know that. We, you only get kind of snippets and stories. You're probably not getting the whole story. People are people. I'm sure they have their problems. But what is it that under persecution and the threat of violence and all that makes them so passionate for Christ? That's what believing the gospel will do. It will give assurance that makes you untouchable. I'd like to have that. I'd like to have that. Beloved, if there is no suffering, there will eventually be no assurance. In Romans chapter 5, it is suffering that produces endurance. It's suffering that produces endurance. Without suffering, faithfulness will wane. 
over time. Unless it's chipped away at, it will wane over time. That's where we get the audacity to argue about the things in the church that we do. We're not suffering. We have time to be upset over what color something is. Right? Because there, you just you just have time. Just twiddling our thumbs, waiting to get catapulted off the trailer park of a planet we all live on. Right? So you just... Just, you know what, I'd, I'd like to have uh, those flowers. You want those? You're cra- I don't want those flowers. I want these flowers. And so we're going to have a flower thing here. Right? I'm just, I'm using flowers as an example. If you're into flowers, please don't get offended. It's the first thing that popped in my head because of the flowers are very pretty. Okay? So don't get offended. I'm just saying, how is that a thing? How are things like that a thing? Right? Because we have time. We have ease. Smyrna avoided rebuke because they were experiencing this. They're suffering. And their suffering has revealed that their faith is real. And so Jesus comes to them saying, I don't have any complaints about you. I want you to hold on a little longer. I'm going to give you the crown of life itself. Remember, I'm the first and the last. I'll give you the crown of life. I'm Lord over this. I hold time in my hands. I rule over your rulers. I'll bring all things to an end. I'll make all things new. Trust in me. Don't defect. Don't defect now. You won't be sorry. Hold on a little while longer. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do we have ears to hear? This is the suffering that conquers the last days. To remain faithful to Jesus in persecution. Because we know, we know personally, the one who walks among the lampstands. We know the one who is the first and the last and after dying was resurrected. We know there's a beast, but we know he's on the leash of our Savior. By the world's standards, we are poor without their approval, without their support. But by God's standards, we are rich By having nothing but His approval in verse 9. There is no promise in the Bible, beloved, that we are not going to be hurt by the first death. Literal death. But we will never be hurt by hell. John's word for that is the second death. Eternal condemnation and conscious torment. That won't touch us. The martyrs in Smyrna... In Revelation 2 are a deliberate preview of the great host of martyrs who are slain for the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God in chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 of Revelation, who share in the first resurrection and enjoy Christ's protection from the second death. Jesus says to us tonight, I don't want you to be afraid of what's coming. I am the first and the last. I don't want you to be afraid. I've conquered death. Chapter 1, verse 18, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. So Jesus, when He says, don't be afraid of death, it's not a platitude for our self-esteem. He trampled death under His feet. How? By dying. Death is no threat, therefore, to the power of the one who holds the keys of death in Hades. So the Christian faith doesn't spread by conquering people or by killing. It spreads by dying so that others may live. The crown of life is gained by dying. This is precisely what Jesus showed His people. And we do everything we can to avoid it. We may or may not be martyred for our faith, beloved. I don't know. I don't know if if it will get to that point in our lifetimes. We ought to be aware of the fact that how quickly that can happen. Just how the tide in Rome turned from you guys are a nuisance to throw them in and let them be eaten by the lions. we got to kill them, get them out of here. You can feel that type of hatred starting to grow. 
And I'm just, I'm telling you, look, the fight is not to double down on our rights. I don't want them to be taken away. I'm not going to try to get them taken away. Beloved, I'm just telling you, do you want to be hurt? Do you not want to be hurt by the first death? Right? Or do you not want to be hurt by the second death? We may or may not be martyred for our faith. But if that is the means of our death, we need to know that the first and the last, and the one who died and is alive forevermore, is saying, Listen, I know. I know. Stand. Stand. I will be with you. And the first thing you'll see after you close your eyes in this life and open them in the next is me holding a crown for you. And if that's true, then God help me understand trials are a gift in that sense. They give us something the lack of suffering cannot give to us. Assurance. We battle as believers here over our assurance. We fret over it. What? Why? We have the gospel. We hear it time and time again. Why do we lack so much assurance because of our struggle with sin when the Bible is so clear that you will struggle with sin and Christ has conquered it? Beloved, is it that we don't suffer for belonging to Christ? Again, the worst we're going to get is teased on Saturday Night Live right now. You know, I mean, it, it, it just... The whole rationale here from Jesus to John to the church is, listen, Christians don't fear persecution. That's God's design for our faith. They're not doing it to test your faith. They're doing it to kill your faith. But I'm behind everything and I want your faith tested so that you have assurance. When you have to pay for something, you possess it a little differently. When you don't, you take it for granted. Jesus says, I know where you live. I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Some of you are going to go to prison and you're going to die. And listen, he tells them that and he does nothing to intervene. Right? If you're a Smyrna Christian and you hear, look, some of you they're going to throw in prison, which they know, again, and they know, well, that means exile or death, and it's going to mean death. You're saying that. Be faithful unto death. Why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? I will. I'll give you the crown of life. You want to keep living here? Why don't you come to me? Right? Statements like that means Jesus knows what is better. Trust me, it's, it's better for you to come and be with me. That's what all this was about. So if suffering intensifies here for us, how will we respond? What are we hoping in that will shape our response to true suffering? Does God not see us? Does He not care anymore? Why? Because we've adopted the mindset that proof of God's presence and blessing is success, victory, God back in America, whatever that means. All that stuff, that's what it looks like when God is blessing you. That's what it looks like when God is on your side. Has God abandoned me? That's what we'd be asking if our hope is in America. When true suffering comes, what did we do? Why did you abandon us? Why did it change? If all our religious liberties are taken away, does it mean God is judging us? Beloved, That was taken care of at Calvary. God's judgment on you. It didn't get poured out on us. It got poured out on Christ. It's finished. It's finished. That's not what's happening. He isn't judging us in suffering. God raised the one who did suffer for our sins from the dead anyway. When Jesus says to Smyrna and to his suffering church in all places and at all times that he's the first and the last, he means to overcome how suffering and pain and sorrow destabilize our faith. The one who walks among us says that he's in complete comprehensive control of our lives over all that has happened and all that will happen. He is the first and the last, meaning 
Everything in our lives falls in between Jesus. He has the first and the final say over me. We can't understand all that we go through, but we can know there's a that to all of it. His knowledge, His power, His promise, His grace. He is our strength. He is the source and the goal of our whole lives. The Smyrnans endured because they believed verse 8. They believed the gospel. They hoped in the resurrection. So maybe the question should not be, why are they suffering? Maybe the question we really need to ask ourselves tonight is, why aren't we? Why aren't we? See, we think that because we're against the homosexual agenda, that the legalities being turned against us are suffering. For example, beloved, that is not suffering for the name of Christ. That's suffering for the law. The threat to our constitutional rights is not suffering. That's a blessing. That is not even common in the world. Why aren't we being hated to the point of martyrdom? Is the very hard question we probably need to ask. Maybe because all this world sees in us that it would hate is something that can be conquered and overcome by political means. So they haven't decided yet they need to kill us. They just need to win politically. They need to get the Constitution changed. You know you don't want to fight on that front because that's what their hope is in. Right? That's why they want to change the Constitution and change the laws and everything. Because right now, that's the front we're fighting them on. So we'll just take that away from you, Christians, and we'll be in charge. And so our fight is, no, 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 we'll be in charge. Avoid suffering at all costs, especially for your faith. Beloved, what if that's how we gain the assurance necessary to go die? If we don't have that, how will we die well? What if, I'm gonna, let me say something crazy. What if we were a church worth killing? Wouldn't that be something? To be a church worth killing? No, I don't want it to hurt. That's not what I mean. And I'm not trying to sound tough. Beloved, I am not. But just what if we finally tapped in to what it meant to belong to Jesus in this world? What if they just had to get rid of us? Because the light was too bright and the salt was too salty. If we just loved and served people so much with the gospel that they're like, we got to get you clowns out of here. Faith like that doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. If we spend our whole lives depending on earthly powers to protect us, we're going to scatter like little ants when those powers betray us. If we don't let go of that need now, we'll be crushed by it later. If this life and what we have is of the highest value to us, then losing it will make it seem like Jesus has failed us. And the despair and displacement that results from that, when suffering specifically for the gospel comes, will completely destroy us. Listen, unless the Lord returns, we will experience the first death one way or the other, but we will not experience the second. We are not going to hell. We are not going to suffer for eternity. Only for a little while. Only for a little while. And Jesus isn't lying to us. It's not like when we get over there, we'll think, oh man, I I mean, this is okay. But no, 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 no. No, just, I think, maybe it's a romantic notion. When we finally lock eyes with Him and see His face, It was you. That's the face that bled for me. 
I think that in and of itself will do it. I really do. I want to see his face. I want to know what he looks like. No matter how much we endure here in the present, we will never suffer in the age to come. Did you hear me? Better yet, did you hear Jesus? We'll never suffer in the age to come. We need the future brought into the present and imposed on our circumstances, you and me. I don't deserve anything more than the second death. Nothing would be more fitting than for me to be crying for the rocks and mountains to crush me when Jesus returns to settle all the accounts. And the only reason I won't be is because of Jesus and what he did for me. In this, I hope. He bought me. I'm his. He owns me. Who knows what they will think of to do to you and me? I don't know. But they don't own us. They never will. So my life for him. Right? My life for him. With this hope, I desire to conquer these last days, even through suffering. And it will have to be a gift of God's grace because, again, I don't like being minorly inconvenienced. But he will hold me up. He's the first and the last. He rose from the dead. He holds all the keys. So even if we suffer, we conquer. We win. Because he has.